Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Uh, As I like to do often, I like to tell a story that sort of relates to the person or the genre that they are involved in. And my guest today uh, is Todd Garner, who is an incredibly uh, unbelievable uh, executive in every right in the film business uh, just amazing what he's done and I always thought of him as a guy that was very uh, different from other people in the business uh, because it always seemed to me that not only was he able to execute a plan not only was he able to see through a plan for a movie but he was a really great idea guy a guy who could come up with something just from a little newspaper article or a one-liner or something that somebody told them in the gym, possibly. It just it was just amazing, and they'd become these hundred-million-dollar movies. And when I was in New York, uh, I had uh, my management office was at Fifty Seventh and Broadway, and there was a young young comedian that I'd seen at a festival in Colorado. It was either Aspen or Vale or something like that. And uh, he was a really, really cool kid, very unique. He was from Minneapolis. And um, he just had this way about him. It was really special. But I really didn't pull the trigger on representing him. And he ended up signing with a 
another manager who's uh, doing really well, a guy named Dave Becky, who now represents everybody from, you know, Louis C.K. to Bill Burr to Kevin Hart. And um, he was starting to move the needle a little bit. And I remember I was in my office one day, and this young kid, he came into my office, and he just <laughs> walked right in and sat down. And he said, Barry, um, it's my birthday today, and it's a very sad day for me. I said, why is it a sad day? It's your birthday. How old are you? He said, I'm 19. I said, what's, what's sad? He said, Dave Becky took me to lunch today, and I thought we are going to celebrate my birthday. And he, he fired me. <laughs> he, he told me he couldn't work with me anymore. I said, don't worry, man. I'll, I'll, I'll work with you. I, I love what you do. Um, I think you're amazing. He said, oh, thanks, Barry. Listen, I was wondering, um, could I come into the office this Saturday? Could you meet me here? I have something I need to fax to Jamie Kennedy. I said, sure, no problem. No problem at all. So I go to my office on Saturday, and he comes in. He's wearing a backpack, and he reaches into his backpack and he pulls out one of those spiral notebooks you know the ones where you you rip off a page and all that paper stuff falls out and it's all over the floor and you can't get it off the floor whatever. and he pulls out the notebook and i said what do you what do you need to fax he said i need to fax uh, some of these pages in this notebook i said okay we're gonna have to you know get a paper cut or something because whatever and i said what is it he said it's a, it's a screenplay I wrote. I said I, I don't I don't understand. What do you mean you wrote you wrote a screenplay on in a notebook? Yeah, man, I wrote it all out. Here, look. And in this notebook was a hundred pages handwritten of a screenplay called Suckas. S U C K A Z. I said. Uh, Okay, uh, so I cut it. I'm, I'm hand cutting with a hand cutter, whatever those things are, the paper cutter. I got Jamie Kennedy's number, and we're faxing this thing one page at a time to Jamie Kennedy. He leaves, clean up the floor, <laughs> and he calls me up on Monday. He says, listen, uh, Jamie really liked it. He's bringing it to Warner Brothers. I said, oh, cool. No problem. That's exciting. I wasn't thinking anything of it, you know, this kid, just 19 years old or whatever. And uh, got the call at the end of the week. Barry, you're not going to believe this. They're going to make my movie. They're making a deal to make the movie. We're, we're going to do a deal. And... Uh, I was just in shock because this young kid was ripping off pages of a thing and now they're going to make a deal with Jamie Kennedy and him to write it and it was going to be at Warner Brothers and that movie turned out to be one of their biggest comedies that year uh, called Malibu's Most Wanted <laughs> and the young man who came in my office ripping off those pieces of paper at 19 Nick Swartzen. 
Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. I'm very excited about my guest today. Uh... This young man was a co-head of production at Disney, uh, working with Joe Roth, formerly also a founding partner of Revolution Studios, uh, where he was responsible for overseeing every aspect of development, from everything from Black Hawk Down, Hellboy, Daddy Daycare, Triple X, Anger Management, Are We There Yet? Uh, then he started his own company called Broken Road Productions. Uh, we'll talk about why it's called Broken Road in 2005. And he's done a ton of movies there. I think he's done seven movies in the past nine years or whatever it is. Uh, Here Comes the Boom, um, uh, Paul Blart Mall Cop, Zookeeper, Night and Day, which grossed over $261 million with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. He's got a ton of films in development that we're going to talk about, and I'm really proud and happy to have one of the best guys in the business, Todd Garner, with me today. Thank you. It's so funny. The reason why Todd is here today is because <laughs> I send out this uh, notice every month uh, to uh, the people on my email list just to let them know about the, the show and everything like that, and... I get this horrifying email back from Todd. It says something to the effect of, my name is not Tom. <laughs> I am not Tom, Tom Garner. <laughs> I am Todd Garner. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. I, I, I actually know who you are. I'm sorry. I've worked with you. I just, I feel so horrible now. And so then I just went one step further in the schnorr train and I actually uh, called you and asked you to do this and you... And you said yes, which is exciting. So Thank you. I have uh, a lot of things to talk to you about today, uh, but I always like to start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So take me way back to, uh, you know, where you grew up and, and what was the first thing that happened or that you saw or that went down that you said, I want to be in this business. Right. I started off wanting to be an architect and... Uh, and um, I, I'm pretty much got that job now. I'm just an architect <laughs> of movies. Uh, and uh, I was in a drafting class and I was in 10th grade in a drafting class. And it, it was, it was absolutely horrible. It was, it was just me and like four other kids drawing squares. <laughs> and my other buddy <clears throat> had gone into a class um, called improv. And he, he, we met at like lunch and I had just come out of my drafting class and he goes, you dude, you have to come see this improv class the, the, the girls are unbelievable it's so much fun so i go I, absolutely so i went to this improv class where was this john f kennedy high school in the valley in uh, san fernando and uh there was this woman there who was teaching uh, the class her name was mrs peterson and uh i loved it i went up and and it was just so much fun and uh 
she's, you know, she said, you, you should do this. And so I left drafting and got into theater, <laughs> I guess, first thinking I maybe would do stand up or maybe, maybe, maybe be an actor, but quickly kind of came to the realization <laughs> that I'm not good at either. And, uh, started taking a lot of classes and thought, well, you know, maybe film is the place I don't have any relatives or anybody in the business despite growing up in LA. Then I went to Occidental College, and uh, it's a liberal arts college, and they don't really have a film department. So, why did you go to a college that didn't have an entertainment department if you were interested in entertainment? Well, because my dad went there, Got and, it. and and so since he was the the, the first person in, our, in my entire lineage that ever went to college, I wanted to honor him and go to that school and suicided, and thank God got in, uh, and then to your point knowing they didn't have film classes I was going to go to USC film school and got a job working at that time uh, industrials were huge everybody was doing spending millions of dollars doing industrial film explain to our audience what industrial film is back then uh, companies like AT&T and Pacific Bell and the electric company and gas company and they would all do training videos they would all do promotional videos they would do sales inspirational videos I got a job at a company that did those, and um, so what I did was to supplement the fact that Occidental didn't have a lot of film classes, I took a lot of independent study using all these different projects of when I was working. Went to SC, <clears throat> I applied, got into the film school, but they, because my classes didn't transfer, I was going to lose a year, and you know we weren't very well off, so it would set my dad back a year of paying for private college. And so my, there was no way my dad was just going to let me be a film, have a film degree. He, you know, he really wanted me to have a business degree as well. So I went to the SC and I said, you know, can I get a business degree? And it was a completely different school, completely different process. So I drove back to Occidental that day and said, can I, can I become an economics major? And they go, yeah, go ahead. What, who's stopping you? So I then slammed an economics degree in two years. So I actually graduated Occidental with a degree in economics and a degree in art. And then, so it felt as if I knew exactly what I wanted to do. My degree was perfectly made up uh, to be a producer, but I didn't actually have that idea. Then I thought maybe I might want to be a director and then really sort of fell into editing. Loved editing. Um, they had just come up with a new software-based system, which is really the precursor to the Avid. There wasn't a lot of people that knew how to do it, so I got tons of jobs. I worked for Playboy for a while. I worked for all different industrials, music videos, propaganda. You worked for Playboy? Yes. Uh, we you ever did. date a playmate? I, I did, but that's a totally different story. Uh, so I thought you're not allowed to dip your pen in company ink. Yes, well, that was after. Oh, okay. you, believe me, so. when you're an editor in college wearing no shoes with long hair, you're not dating the playmates then. <laughs> it wasn't until I got to Disney that that happened. Um, and then, um, so became an editor and sort of really was digging being an editor. And when I graduated from college, actually was editing full time. And really sort of at that point realized it's not really what I wanted to do. I really wanted to be a producer and didn't know how to do it. <clears throat> so thought using my business degree that I would go to Stanford Business School. Applied, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, before I applied, the, the track from Occidental to Stanford was always going through Wells Fargo Bank. So I got a job at Wells Fargo Bank, downtown Los Angeles, uh, being a, a personal banker. They sent me all the way through personal banking school, which is very intense all to set up to get this degree at Stanford. At the end of um, going through this personal banking school, weirdly, my father, like in the one time he's ever spoke to anyone in the business, had, had played golf with a guy who was um, 
at Paramount in television, working for uh, Lucy Salhaney at the time. Yeah. And uh, they said, you know, we have this new show called Arsini Hall, and we need somebody to do the books. And uh, and I have the weird, it look, again, it looked like weirdly like my resume was designed to do this job. I have a degree in economics. I worked at Wells Fargo Bank. I was an editor. I worked in production. So I got this job. I got this kind of low-level you know, accountant job. And I remember walking into the first day of Arsenio Hall's stage going, there's no chance this is going to work. There's 400 seats. How is this going to work? And it was great. It was the most unbelievable year of my life. And you were there from the beginning. From the beginning. Every Friday night, Bill Clinton would be there, Eddie. And it was amazing to watch. Um, and I was just paying the bills, you know, for them. And uh, what, but I was on the lot. And so once you're on a lot, everything it's like you become light years ahead of where you were before you got on the lot so i explain to our audience because a lot of times you know there's people all over the world listening and and they don't really understand what it's like to either have an office on a lot versus an office in an office building near the lot right and so a lot of people uh a lot of executives they love having their office on a lot some of the biggest people in the world love it more than having the greatest office in an office building. Explain why you think that is and what. Well, being on a lot at that time, especially for somebody who was in television, was eye-opening because, we, you know, I'd play basketball with Jason Bateman, you know, just and, and we were I was just an accountant and you know he was <laughs> on a TV show. And so you got to meet different people. And through meeting different people and kind of investigating, I heard about this job called a creative executive. And I think that's why producers want to be on lots because that can happen. You can just bump into people. What, you know. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Because the, for those of you uh, listening, there's like stages. There's like you could yes. go on a lot where there's like there could be 30, 40 stages that are these huge monstrous buildings that would take up a city block. Right. And there's all different kinds of productions, not just the productions within that studio. Other studios and networks are renting space. Films are on the lots because they might there might be an airplane movie and they might build a, a replica of an entire airplane mm -hmm. in a in one of these lot in, uh, in one of these uh, stages right and so you run into film people you run yep. into television people it's exactly amazing. right and yeah and, and if you're an independent producer that can be beneficial if you hear some somebody's looking for a movie or you run into a director that you've been trying to get a hold of it can be very advantageous 
well, in this case, I found out that there was this job called a creative executive, and I then didn't know anything about reading scripts or story development. So I took a class at UCLA Extension, which was taught by Bob Greenblatt, who's now the chairman of NBC. And he taught this story development class, and he taught us how to read scripts. And he, and he was part of his own company in Greenblatt Janelari with nope, David Janelari. No, he this was the story editor at Lorimar then. Lorimar back then was run by Les Moonves, I believe. Yeah. It was a television mostly, and they had done tried to do some features. But he, he was very good at story even back then and taught this class. And um, uh, from there found out that the kind of the way to become a creative executive was to get a job in as, as an assistant somewhere. And so using my Paramount connections and kind of walking around a lot, I found out that there was this guy uh, who was looking for an assistant. His name was Jordan Bear, who has now become an agent because he was absolutely one of the worst uh, <laughs> studio executives ever. I think he would even admit that. It was great because I learned what, exactly what not to do. Where was he a studio executive? At Price Entertainment. And Price Entertainment was a production company that was based at, in Columbia Pictures <clears throat> during the Don Steele years. And when Don, when uh, Peter Guber and John Peters took over Sony, they fired Don, and and Frank ascended, and so we all got kind of swept up into the um, into the fold of uh, Columbia at the time. That then becoming then had just become Sony. But you have a job. You have a job. You're you know you're on a set. It's a it's a show that's kicking ass, Arsenio. Uh, people love you there, but you're mm-hmm. like you know fuck it. I don't want to be an accountant. I right. want to do something else. So you you you. you 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 quit the job or what did you? Yeah, well, even worse. He, the worst part was that I was actually making a great living as an editor. I was in the union. I was making a good living, and then I got this job at at Wells Fargo, which was great. I mean, I make commission. I was selling loans, and I was doing great. In fact, when I left Wells Fargo to go work at um, uh, Paramount in television. They offered me the Pacific Palisades branch to be a branch manager. I can't remember how old I was. I was probably 23. And I didn't do that. I took this job you know, in accounting. And then from there, got this job as an assistant making $400 a week. Unbelievable. Gross. Now, how old are you then? <laughs> I was probably 24 then. 24. So already at 24, you've had three jobs <laughs> that you're successful at, that people love you at, right. that you're making money at that are going really, really well, and because you're chasing that dream, yes. you just say, you know what, uh, forget about the money. Right. I want to go where I'm, I, yeah. I'm lo- I love this business. And so <laughs> you made much four- to my Much to my father's chagrin, by the way, who I was proving his theory to be correct, that a film degree was absolutely insane, because every job I made less money. But I figured 400 a week gross was probably the lowest I could go. <laughs> I, had to, I had to eventually climb out of that. So I was an assistant for a year and a half, and it was amazing that's when Peter uh, Goober and John Peters took over Sony. That's when everything combined. Now talk a little bit about Peter and John uh, because I think that just anything, because there's so many stories, right. there's so many crazy things. If there's one thing that stands out to you about them, maybe a first meeting you had with them or any kind of... The, the well, time. I was so below... But me. I mean, you still had to have met them at some point. Didn't in actually. It's interesting. It didn't. I mean, you know, we w- w- when we got folded in in the Thalberg building, it was right when... John was spending $250,000 a year on uh, flowers, and Darius Hatch was there, and Amy Pascal was an executive there, and, and Teddy Z, who was an executive there. It was, it was a really exciting time because it was really in the studio heyday for all the studios, not just, not just Sony, and they, they were throwing such big money at, at the studio at the time that it was wild to watch. It, it felt like the Wild West. I mean, everybody was 
getting promoted if you bought one script you would get promoted <laughs> to become a you know vp and you know if you really look at peter and john's career up to that point they, it was just a perfect zeitgeist they, they they hit at exactly the right moment where they had batman rain man and gorillas in the mist and those three movies at the exact right time propelled them into this in incredible job and, and 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 peter has proven out to be one of the best entrepreneurs out there so i mean i think I think in the way that that Jerry has ascended, uh, you know, since the passing of Don and Peter has, has Jerry Bruckheimer, yeah, Bruckheimer, and 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 um, and passing of Don Simpson, yeah, and and how Peter uh, Cooper has ascended through his separation from John Peters, it, you always can kind of see who the real create. I mean, not that Peter's not creative, but John was really the creative, you know, kind of mastermind in that partnership, as was, assumably Don. Simpson was in, in Jerry's relationship, but you can see once those people separate that, that that's actually not the case. So from there, I... Uh, but what's weird with that is that, you know, and again, that is what's generally thought of. But when a guy dies, you don't have the example. You don't have the example of what would have happened with right. that person. Now, based on the history of what his trajectory right. was, you might think it wasn't going to be as right. strong as Jerry, well, but... Then, I look. I only know Jerry, and we, we'll, we'll get to that. But I only know Jerry as incredibly creative and incredibly one. Of, I mean, one of my mentors in terms of being a producer. I mean, the guy is hands down one of the greatest producers I've ever met. Um, and uh, but the but the the rap on him bef before Don died was that Jerry was more of the money guy, and that's absolutely proven not not to be true. I mean, Jerry's incredibly incredibly creative. But for, we're going to talk a lot about that. So yeah, let's get okay. back. So you're you're so you're I'm in this assistant, assistant four hundred hours a week. Yeah, I'm an assistant at Columbia Pictures. When the next logical step from being an assistant was to become this kind of coveted job of a creative executive, and I had heard that Disney was hiring, and, I, and at the time, Disney had the uh, the incredible reputation of under Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner of you know if you don't come to work on Saturday, don't bother showing up on Sunday, and the the myth was that Jerry would go into feel everybody's car to feel how long everybody had been there. I mean, that's was, right. You'd go through the parking. I, that wasn't a myth. I don't know if it's true, but that's that was definitely the myth. Yeah, um, feeling the hoods of the feeling cars. Feeling the hoods of the cars to see if you'd been there. So but, if you don't come in on Saturday. Don't come in on Sunday. You're done. But <laughs> And I, it, was, it, it was an incredible education because at the time, uh, specifically Disney the, uh, and, and under Jeffrey, they, they really were trying to brand their movies and so, and so they had an incredible work ethic in terms of giving notes m much to the you know chagrin of most filmmakers and it became a, a le legendary that the notes were just so you know you know voluminous there was pages and pages of notes and and I and I, I as I went from creative executive to director of development to VP to senior VP I tried to you know kind of can get those notes to a manageable kind of level and and so we gave these notes classes to these kids that would come behind us and become a creative ex executive and we tried to distill the notes down to you know what why how what's the problem why is it a problem and how are you going to fix it and that formula is still you know used to this day at disney i don't know if it's used anywhere else but it really helped as opposed to just giving a filmmaker 50 pages of notes and they had always even even back then really wanted to just basically focus on the disney brand which is ultimately what I think under Bob Iger they've been able to do now. So you got a creative uh, position working with who? I was working under Donald DeLine at the time. Don DeLine. And Donald was was Touchstone. 
and Again, that was under Jeffrey Katzman. Another <laughs> tremendous producer. Yeah, Donald's great. And they uh, and that was under uh, all under Jeffrey Katzenberg, and I, and I ascended through the ranks. So tell me something when you got there, that was the first thing that was being developed. That well, I had, I had gotten there just after um, Pretty Woman had come out. <clears throat> so my first movie uh, as a creative executive was Father of the Bride, uh, which was Nancy and Myers and and Charles Shire's uh, movie that they wrote and directed there. And so that was my first movie. And it's funny, one of my first experiences was there was a, a vice president there. Her name was Bridget Johnson, and um, and uh, we were watching <laughs> we were watching dailies, and I because I was an editor. For, for those you don't know uh, out there, the dailies are basically the the footage from each day's uh, shoot that uh, the executives get sent to them. Back then, it was in videotape they got sent them. Now, uh, you well, get actually, them. it was back then. It was film. We actually watched. Oh, you watched the we film. We went into a screening room. And we watched it, and we were all in the screening room. And um, I was watching it. It was probably the second day of dailies, and I was watching, and there was something that they um, he had broken the line. It was a weird piece of coverage that he was in a weird set and couldn't get the coverage he wanted. And I just said to Bridget, I go, that's never going to cut. <laughs> she was so mad at me. She's like, what? what you, who, why would you say that? And literally two days later, Charles called and goes, it's never going to cut. we got to reshoot it. And so from that moment, she was like, well, where, what did, what, how did you know that? And I had been an editor for seven years. So I, and that, and that, by the way, to, to this day, still that those years of being an editor is probably my best foundation I have for in any, for anything I've done before since well it's also is that you took a risk you're in a room you're at the lowest level there is there's somebody who's above you who's and you take a risk to say something that you believe in knowing that you could get your ass handed to you right but I, you I wish i was that thought through I wish, I wish through my whole career i said shit and it was really thought out better it's generally not it's generally i just say uh what i feel and hope it works out and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it doesn't. And so you obviously work your way up because there were a lot of people that were creative executives who went through the ranks who didn't stay at the company, mm -hmm. weren't there. You kept moving up. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you kept moving up? What is it that you did that other people couldn't figure out how to do back then that made you be able to have that kind of trajectory? Well, it... I mean, I just really worked hard. I mean, I really worked hard on the notes, tried to learn what each executive wanted, tried to really figure out what they wanted in terms of how they wanted to make movies. It, it wasn't always necessarily the way I would have done it, but I tried to really learn their their system. Um, and in fact, when Je and and, Je and I, Jeffrey and I had a great relationship, and Jeffrey really liked me, and. Um, I, and I liked his taste, and I, I still think he has he has incredible taste. And uh, but when Jeffrey left the company, and there was this period of transition, I was really stagnating. I mean, I was really kind of done. My, you know, we all had our lists of projects, our little projects we had because I was a VP at the time, and so I had this list of projects, and uh, they were kind of going nowhere. It was just sort of like. Because the p new people that came in, they wanted their fingerprints on things. And if you brought something forward that became a huge hit, they wouldn't have gotten credit well, for it. Well, no, actually, in this case, it was actually the other way around. It was, you know, 
Donald had ascended kind of as far as he was going to ascend. You know, David Vogel at the time was running Disney. I was trying to put forth movies that we weren't really making. I mean, if you remember the the, the famous Jeffrey Katzenberg memo that he sent, Jeffrey sent a memo. Talk a little bit about this. <clears throat> well, Jeffrey sent a memo because big movies, big expensive movies, were not working at, at Disney. And tell me some of the ones that. Well, Dick Tracy. Working. Dick Tracy was the f- most famous one that was he uh, he quoted that in his memo and and the, fr- the frightening part for me was he 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 specifically said everybody's name like you know dear todd and then you got it it was a hard copy everybody got it and so i got it on christmas day and thought somehow i was to blame and thought he just sent it to me and so i was in a panic because i thought so I, it didn't uh, say cc all no the no rest it of just the- it wasn't even an email it was a hard copy it was uh-huh. hand delivered knock on your door christmas day <laughs> dear todd stop making big we can't make big movies anymore and i was like what what i what what did i do and so but didn't he approve the big movies well yeah i mean i think at the time look it's cyclical right i mean at that time i mean he had to look were, at the movie and say hey we're right. going forward or we're not well going dick tracy forward. wasn't my movie so that's why I was even more confused because uh-huh. I didn't think that I had done it. But but m- the movies on my slate were movies that weren't at the moment popular at that time in the company. And so I was – when Jeffrey left to go start DreamWorks, I was really uh, wanting to go with him. And he and he thought that would be a good idea. And then it, it, didn't, it didn't work out uh, because Joe Roth came to the studio. And that, that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, oh, great. Here's this guy, new guy who's just going to – eat me up and um the only experience i had with him is uh i bought uh i i I competed against him when he was at caravan for the rock i wanted to buy the rock and they ended up buying the rock and so that was my only experience is like oh great this guy like you know took took the movie i wanted to make and then uh so so he he when he first got there he said let's go around the room and i'm going to tell you guys uh all the movies i want to make and they were literally my whole list and so I went, okay, well, and he came, met me after. He said, look, I know you want to go with Jeffrey. Give me six months, and uh, I think we're going to get along because we, you know, we have the same taste in movies, and I worked for him for 10 years. What's really interesting about that is normally when a guy comes into a company, he normally wants to clear out the people there and right. bring in his own people and right. be in a situation where he can have more control. Right. It's amazing what that says about you is that the the guy you were working with wants to take you to DreamWorks and this guy coming in doesn't want to get you out of there and bring in his own guy. Right. He wants you even though you've been with the other guy mm-hmm. who's now the enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I yes, but Joe uh, Joe and Jeffrey were never enemies. I mean, Joe really was intervening as a friend because it, it was it was getting heated between Michael and and Jeffrey. By the way, I was a director of development. It was not like Jeffrey was like wasn't going to run his company. He was just trying to say, hey, there's this... Well, I don't think, when I say the enemy, I don't <laughs> think the Disney company was was too happy that Jeffrey was going to right. be competing that, that, with That Denver. is true. That is true. Michael always had that, that thing with Jeffrey. But my, but my experience with Joe was, since that moment, I just really got his taste, and I really got the way he wanted to make movies. And, and, and in my mind, there's just nobody, there's no better guy, there's no nicer guy, there's no guy who will just reach out to, to you and be more loyal to you. And he, he's just been an incredible friend and mentor to me. I want to take a little detour with him for a second because I think it's important to to talk about. I mean, here's a guy who came in, he, you know, to, to run this huge thing, to make great movies. And as a as a audience member, 
for myself and, and in the industry. One day you just read Joe Roth is going to be directing. Oh, right. In your mind, how does it happen that a guy just goes from, you know, developing and creating and putting these packages together with these huge movies and then just one day says, you know what? I want to direct. He's never directed anything before, yet everybody is endorsing him going in and directing. Mm -hmm. How does something like that happen? Do you remember how it was happening? Did yeah. everybody look at him like, uh, Joe, we, we need right. you here. We, yeah. You can't take a year off of your life. Because right. directing is like a... For those of yeah. you who don't know, if you really, really are doing it the way it's supposed to be done, you're talking at least a year mm -hmm. of your life. And that mm -hmm. takes a year away from developing mm -hmm. 100, 200, 300 million dollar movies. Mm -hmm. The first time you heard that that was something that was going on in his mind, like what were you thinking it, and how what was the company thinking? It didn't. Well, it didn't surprise me because if you really look at Joe's history and, and his career tra trajectory, it and as a whole, it makes a lot more sense. I mean, he was a producer. He's very involved. He's always been successful. He started Morgan Creek. He found, you know, um, Home Alone. I mean, he's always been a very hands-on, very filmmaker-friendly uh, guy all through his career, whether he was a producer or an executive. Um, and he and he's always been uh, very passionate about film and always been very passionate about s storytelling. And it was a, it was absolutely a logical progression. Um, and in terms of the way that it happened when when Revolution was formed and he was going to go direct, it didn't seem odd to us. Um, and, and, and I think from the outside looking in, it probably seemed odd because we were a studio. Um, but we really, especially in the beginning, looked at ourselves more as a production company as, you know, Joe really wanted to produce the movies that he was involved in. So it didn't seem that odd to us going from being a producer to a director. Yes, going from a chairman of a huge Fortune 500 company to a director is a little bit more of a leap, but seeing Joe's tra trajectory and know how filmmaker friendly he is and how much he loves story and how much he loves being involved with storytelling, it, it didn't it didn't seem odd at all. Do you remember the- I could have used his help. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I think that for me, it was the hardest because I really wanted him there. I really wanted to be able to bounce stuff off and he made himself available a, a lot but do you remember the first conversation you had at disney where he took you in his office he closed the door and he said um todd uh i think we're gonna make a change here uh, we're gonna be forming our own company i think i can get financing and uh I'm going to leave here and have more control, and we're going to start our own thing. Do you remember that conversation? No, because it didn't happen. It absolutely did not happen that way. What happened was um, I, <clears throat> I literally uh, made, a, made, a, made a huge bet that he was going to stay, and Nina Jacobson and I both did. I mean, the, the trajectory was uh, and Nina Jacobson who was at the studio and then ended up uh, running things and overseeing the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. And now she's producing The Hunger Games, so she's doing great. Yeah. Um, and, and, and she... And True to form what you said, you know, and when she had, uh, just so our audience knows, Nina was an amazing and interesting and eclectic executive and just really, really special kind of unique voice. And here she oversaw the Pirates of Caribbean mm -hmm. franchise that made the company probably a billion dollars. And I believe around Christmas time, 
she was given uh, her letter of uh, right. to uh, well, to worse, say she was in the delivery room of her partner who was having her, their. That's baby. right. They were having a baby, and she got the word that she was being fired. Right. Well, the, and so the, and then then but true to form as the Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer thing. You know, talent rules, Absolutely. and whether you're behind the camera or in front of the camera, and she proved with the Hunger Games that she she's incredibly talented. I mean, incredibly talented, and it was one of my favorite partnerships of my life. You know, was probably next to my marriage. I mean, she was amazing. She was really special. She she had different skills than I did, and and we complemented each other. Great. My only regret is that it didn't get to last longer. But the, the way that that happened was Donald the Line was the head of touchstone and Dis- and david volga was the head of disney and donald was uh i don't know if it was mutual you'd have to ask him but he was let go and um and uh that put me in a very vulnerable position because donald was my you know like my older brother and and it became very clear that there were going to be more changes on the horizon so nina and i really kind of formed a really great bond and realized that if we worked together, we could be, you know, much better than just either of us working uh, uh, singularly. So we sort of teamed up and then David Vogel was, was let go and Nina and Jacobson and I got the job. Honestly, at that point, I thought Joe was going to sign another eight year deal and this was going to be our chance to really kind of do something great. And when you say got the job, what was your we title the then? Co-presidents of production. Co-presidents Nina, of production. Nina and, I. and, um, and then it just all went sideways. I mean, you know, uh, Ovitz came in, and then and then Michael Eisner promoted Peter Schneider from from animation, and Joe was let go. And what when you I mean when you look back at that, you know, I always I had uh, Robert Morton on here on a podcast, and um, we talked about Letterman and how Letterman was he was number one. I mean, mm-hmm. he was just number one and he was prime for that Carson job Mm -hmm. and it was his I mean he was the guy everybody knew so he sort of uh, as Bob said he sort of just I I, not to say he had a sense of entitlement but he thought you know hey I'm number one I've got it going on of course Leno on the other hand who was a a mild-mannered guy was hiding in electrical closets mm-hmm. to try to find information and try to figure out how he could get that gig, which he got away from mm-hmm. Letterman mm-hmm. by navigating. Similarly with Nina and yourself and Joe, I mean, you're making this company through your decisions. I mean, I can't even, I'd never be able to count that much money in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's... There's literally maybe one failure for every 15 things you're putting out well, or something. I, I wish that was true. But well, one out of 10, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But, but what I'm saying is is that you guys are responsible for one of the most successful runs in, in film history. How is it justified that a guy comes in, and who does a guy answer to to make wholesale changes like that and bring people in who aren't even doing uh, one-tenth of what you're doing. Right. Well, if you look at, I mean, I think that Michael's long-term strategy is finally coming to pass now. I think that from from the moment that um, Pixar came into the scene, I think that there was a long-term strategy, and I think Disney's finally evolved to that, which is completely focus on the Disney brand, 
Touchstone doesn't really exist anymore. It's been given over to DreamWorks through to release DreamWorks movies. It's not really a standalone company any longer. And what they wanted to do was have a Marvel, have a Lucasfilm, have Disney Animation, have Pixar, and then have Disney film live action just throwing off a couple of movies a year to, to kind of make sure that brand is kind of you know multidimensional because those movies affect every part of that company from not only just in the terms of the theater but through home video through consumer products through the parks back through consumer products back through the parks remakes and so those movies throw off infinitely more options of making money and contributing to the bottom of the company than something like Con Air or Armageddon or The Rock. But Pirates, <laughs> you're saying uh, a franchise like Pirates doesn't add to the franchise? Yes, no, and that's the two that they will make. They'll make a Pirates, they'll make a big, you know, they'll make a Maleficent, they'll make a big Oz, Alice in Wonderland, a big live-action event movie that will contribute to the bottom line of all of the parts of the company. And I think that they had that long-term vision. And, I, and ironically, Joe now is producing... Alice in Wonderland, Maleficent. So it's interesting that it's kind of come full circle. But I think at the time, we were making so many Jerry movies, we were Bruckheimer movies, we were making so many kind of off-brand. You know, at the time, Joe, very close with Harvey and Bob, they made Kundun, which... Harvey and Harvey Bob Weinstein. Weinstein and Bob Weinstein and who had the, who had Dimension back then and, and, and Miramax. Miramax and they made Kundun, which was a huge problem because it created a huge political problem in China and and I just think in terms of the Disney brand they just didn't they didn't need that headache they did there was not there was not enough gross in the non Disney live action branded to move the needle so even though Harvey <laughs> and Bob's movies were always nominated or winning Academy mm -hmm. Awards that didn't mean anything to the brand it doesn't move the needle it doesn't put it doesn't make anyone else go to the parks it doesn't really help the consumer products and that I incredible think you can win the Academy Award but they're like hey that doesn't get somebody down to Never Never Land at well, the park there. I mean, that's just that's. It's a small world after all. It does not <laughs> translate into Academy Awards. I mean, okay. I think that Bob's been very clear, and it's been very successful, and the stock is at an all-time high. So, that for Disney, there was too much damage you could potentially do to the brand, as opposed to really focusing on what it should be, which is and and and, and the interesting thing is when I was there, the thing we always talked about, which is I think why pirates works is we'd always talk about kind of the the the, the where the Disney brand was headed was Indiana Jones. That was like why wasn't that or Star Wars? Why weren't those Disney movies? And 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 I think that at the time why he promoted Peter Schneider and why Joe moved on is I think Joe was a producer. He was very filmmaker friendly. He wanted to take risks. You know, he wanted to make Oh Brother We're Out There. He wanted to make Kundun. He wanted to make um uh, you know, Armageddon. He wanted to make, you know, um, all these different kinds of movies. We did a lot of, really, when Joe was leaving, really started to do a lot with Gangs of New York, with, with Scorsese. And it just, and I just think it just put a lot of pressure on the brand because anything that was off-brand, you'd get press from people that, you know, were Disney shareholders or, or invested in that company in some way. It's like, why are they doing this? It's not, it's off-brand. It doesn't make sense. And digressing a little bit because I just... You talked about dailies before, and there was uh, always these stories about the first Pirates of the Caribbean were looking at the dailies of Johnny Depp, mm -hmm. and there was panic mm -hmm. about how he was playing the character. Mm -hmm. And do you remember those times? Of I, was, I was actually not there, but <clears throat> I had heard the same stories you've heard, and 
look, I mean, at the end of the day, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I mean, looking back on it, and when you see the performance all strung together, it's 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 amazing. It's the whole franchise. But I'm sure the first day when you saw Keith Richards walk out of the in, onto this <laughs> onto the screen, there was a panic for for mo- a multitude of reasons. You, you know, and I he, to be fair, he had all gold teeth in, and he took those out. I mean, there's little things, but. Gore Verbinski and Jerry are incredibly visionary. And Johnny Depp, obviously, there's nobody like him. And it's easy to sit here and say, well, it's the most amazing thing on the planet. I mean, it's, it's you know, Jack Sparrow is the best. But looking forward, I'm sure it was terrifying to everybody. And and to by the, to the credit, they went down, and they, I know Nina went down, and, and they went to the Bahamas, and they and they saw Johnny, and they talked to Gore, and they, they, banked, they banked it. So... Look, you know, everybody who is in that job is trying to do the best job they can and trying to navigate that line between understanding what the filmmaker's vision is while mitigating as much risk as you can, which is impossible because it's it's literally a crapshoot every day. One of the things that we hear often in these podcasts is uh, a great executive will deal with talent in a way where he or she basically says, listen, I'm going to let them do what they do and I'm going to get the fuck out of the way. Mm-hmm. But in your world, there's so much money at stake <clears throat> that sometimes you can't get out of the way. Right. So, but just, go, uh, so, well, so let's just look at Nina. She's the same executive that banked pirates and came back and said, we're, we're going with this vision. He's the same person that had a historical fight with Night Shyamalan. Who, by the way, she was the executive on The Sixth Sense. They had made a lot of money together. Explain and, <laughs> that story, because it's, uh, it's well, great. I don't know all, all the details other than just well, you know more than our audience. Well, it started to go off the rails. I think that they had they had un- talk about the film that they're talking. Well, about. they had uh, unbelievable success with um, with uh, The Sixth Sense, and even they had yeah, uh, unbelievable success with the Alien movie with Mel Gibson, which names escape escapes me right now. And then they uh, signs, and then they, um, and then it was gonna. They were gonna make the village, and uh, Nina just didn't wasn't feeling it, didn't see it, and Knight didn't want to change anything. And in her gut, she just felt it wasn't the right move, and let him take the move. You know, let him, you know, kind of go as far as he could, and it didn't work out. So the next movie, she was saying, "All right, I'm not going to allow that. We need to have a more collaborative partnership," and it, and it blew up, and she was right. So, you know, it's and it hard. could be argued that he hasn't been the same since. Yeah, sure. By the way, if he, if he had, then she she'd be wrong. But it, in this case, it turned out to be the which right seems call. really odd. And this is something you've been a part of before. Is like, obviously, maybe I'm going too far here, but obviously, after the sixth sense and signs, you felt that this guy is is brilliant. Arguably, he could be considered a genius, considering he came from nowhere, mm-hmm. and how many people come from nowhere and and make two movies that gross over God knows what mm-hmm. five hundred million dollars worldwide. Mm-hmm. And then she has to go toe to toe with this guy. He cast Ron Howard's daughter in mm-hmm. the village, uh, mm-hmm. and and so then you got somebody in the movie that's tied to somebody who is one of the most respected people out there. Mm-hmm. 
that's that's even worse than going toe-to-toe with the guy you're going toe-to-toe with the guy and then a representative of a person's family right is in the movie where you're saying this isn't working right i mean it's hard it's uh, it, and and by the way if you if, if you've ever met nina there's nobody that would less define the 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 term suit than her she's an incredible filmmaker and and you know but she's a president of production at Disney at Disney it's easy to call you you know it's always you look at this filmmaker who's made these kind of amazing eclectic movies that have worked and then you're you know then you look at a suit which we all were called even though we all really thought we were creative in some respects but because you know again the artist sometimes has this uh, using the Letterman example the artist sometimes believe you know so here's a guy who comes from nowhere and has two movies that are the most successful movies of their genre probably in like decades Mm -hmm. and you have somebody coming from the studio saying you know what this next thing isn't uh Mm -hmm. this you're not doing this right Mm -hmm. this isn't going to work i mean if you're the artist i mean no matter how much you don't have a sense of entitlement it's hard not to say go fuck yourself right i know what i'm doing i've 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 won twice in a row what have you done today especially when it's disney yeah it's just such a easy such an easy target so the di- so so again so revolution starts from Joe being oh so so I'm Nina and I get this job and and all of a sudden I literally woke up to he's gone and so now you're like what, <laughs> what? how long after you guys I mean we had just been presidents of production a few months I mean I went to I went to Hawaii to work on Pearl Harbor with Michael Bay and, and Jerry Bruckheimer and uh, I was in Hawaii when the whole thing went down so it was it was like completely i was completely blindsided and um again going back to this was a guy where i finally felt like i had my rhythm i finally and and it's to michael's credit who who let me out of my contract eisner he always used to say if you're in the wrong room it'll never work you could be i mean if you if you're you know if you're todd phillips and you're working for merchant ivory you're not going to get a lot of movies made you know it's just those are just two different sensibilities and so uh, I just felt like I was in the wrong room once Joe left and, you know, and that the movies that Peter Schneider wanted to make and the way he approached filmmaking and that sort of animation style was not, was not what I wanted to do and not how I knew how to make movies. And so I just appealed to those guys and said, you know, look, I think I'm in the wrong room. And, and learning from my experience with um, the DreamWorks thing and, and not totally handling that correctly, uh, I never spoke to Joe about what he was doing. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be put in a position where somebody could say, oh, he's enticed you to leave or or there is some sort of collusion going on. I honestly had no idea. I, I'd heard he was going to start a production company like everybody. But he obviously calls you. and He didn't call me. I specifically because of the way things went down with Jeffrey and I screwed it up. When, when, when Jeffrey said he was going to leave DreamWorks, I went to Donald and said, hey, Jeffrey said I should go with him to DreamWorks. And Donald goes, you can't do that in your contract. You literally can't be talking to him. It's, you know, they can't, he can't entice you to leave. And so it really put Jeffrey in a bad position in me and I had totally kind of bungled that. I it definitely in this case said, I'm not talking to anybody. I'm going to deal with myself and my inability probably to get anything made. <clears throat> In, on my slate with this new person. So how does it happen? How do you get there? So eventually, uh, I just appealed to Michael Eisner. I said, look, you always said if I was in the wrong room, that it would never work, and I just don't feel like I'm in the right room now. And uh, they let me out of my contract, and I called Joe, and I said, hey, I'm out of my contract. I hope there's a job or something. He goes, absolutely, come come talk. And so, so I left Hawaii. So before you even know that you can get a job, 
you leave. So this is the, this is literally the fourth or yes. fifth job you've left right. where you're successful right. at it and you're just right. taking the risk to go yeah. to something else yeah. without even knowing what's going to happen. It's true. But I, I kind of felt like, I, I felt at that time that I probably would get a job somewhere and I, I really was more concerned about the fact that I was in the wrong room at Disney. It just didn't feel like, <clears throat> the way that Peter was going to approach making movies didn't didn't feel like they would work for my relationships. It didn't feel like um, Peter was going to be able to make a Michael Bay movie or a Bruckheimer movie or an Adam Sandler movie or any of these any of my relationships. You know, and I had just finished Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It didn't seem like those guys were going to be able to um, exist under the Peter Schneider structure. And the truth of the matter is, he didn't work out. He, it was the wrong room for him. He was only there about eighteen months. Uh, so and then and, you know and then they put the, the the new regime of you know Dick Cook and Oren in place, which which they had a great they had a great time. Now at Revolution, if I'm not mistaken, the first movie out of the gate. Now just bear with me. Was either the Animal or Tomcats? Tomcats. Tomcats. Mm-hmm. So all this money goes into mm-hmm. this company, mm-hmm. and Joe. All the all the scripts, everything he has, all through his life uh-huh. that he has, he chooses Tomcats. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I when I when I saw that coming, I know, out, everybody I was did. Like, I, well, it was a it was and obviously in hindsight it, he wouldn't have done it again, I'm sure. But at that time, for there were no scripts. We were starting a movie. There were no scripts. There were no scripts. We Come were, on, you guys have access to everybody sending you. Sure, stuff. you. But here's the problem: at the time, there were a multitude of buyers. DVD was on its upswing. Everybody was making 15 to 20 movies. We had no marketing. We were a brand new studio. Look at DreamWorks. I mean, DreamWorks had the same problem. When you start any- Our first movie was Pauly, I believe. Yeah, I mean, any studio you start with, you have to get movies going in order to generate income. Otherwise, you're just spending overhead. You need to start priming that pump. It's low-hanging fruit, unfortunately. You know, these small comedies are easy to get done. So the budget of Tomcats was what? I think like thirteen or twelve. So you couldn't really lose, regardless. Even if you the PNA was the, twenty million, no, you only lost in the in the um, in the pool of public <laughs> perception. <laughs> and and really, look, we had never. But we, then, but then you do the animal with uh, Rob Schneider. Well, now let's. I just want to ask you. Let about me finish this. with Tom. Okay. So, so the thought process behind it is, uh, you. It's it's a packaged movie. It came as a package to Joe. It was before I got there. It came in as a package to Joe. He had never worked with the Sony marketing and distribution department. He wanted to see how, how he could work with, within that system, how that was going to work. You aren't going to try to throw a $100 million movie right into that machine. If you don't know it, you don't know how it works. It's a low-budget comedy. Like you said, financially, you can't really lose, especially with the DVD market and the pre-sales that we had. Let's see how this system will work. What, what could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong is exactly what you said is, why would you do that first? You have all this, all this money, all these access, and it really was Joe trying to really be responsible and say, "Let me start small, see how this works, make sure that this is all going to work the way we think it's going to work." Um, and, and unfortunately, the movie was not good, 
and it just it put a dent in public recession. The animal before however, well, Tomcats. When you screened the movie, you, were you there at the time? When we screened the movie, what the other? So when you screen the movie, do you, are you sitting next to Joe and he looks at you and says, "We're fucked." I wish. I wish that had happened. What actually happened was it tested as high as American Pie. It tested as high as American yeah. Pie. I wish it had somebody had said right Where out of the gate. Where did they test that? I know, right? I wish. I wish somebody had said right out of the gate. This is this is bad. You shouldn't release it. I would have. That would have been better. So, but when you you first screened it with him, were you thinking, "Hey, this is this is pretty good"? No, I mean when you're when you're when you're screening it your first time when you're previewing a movie, you're so locked into the details and how can you make it better and trying to be the try to. It was a difficult shoot. Everybody involved, you know, was hard. And you know. Jerry O'Connell and Shannon were coming off of American Pie, it, and and J- Jerry had some top spin, and it felt like, you you know, we were going to get there, and it just it just didn't get there. And then in terms of the animal, the the reason why that was the second one. Well, time out. This is what I want to ask you about the animal. This mm-hmm. is what blows me away because mm-hmm. again, Joe and you seasoned mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. You got Rob, which you know he was. He's yeah, we doing were coming well. off of Deuce Bigelow. Coming off of Deuce Bigelow, uh, which Harris Goldberg, I believe, wrote mm-hmm. that one, and um, whose brother is a uh, uh, a very strong uh, film executive. So you you're doing that movie, and you go to the casting because you're involved. You guys are involved in everything. Mm-hmm. You you guys have a, a vote in everything, mm-hmm. and instead of hiring a proven actress in one of your first tentpole mm-hmm. comedy things for your new company, mm-hmm. you decide to hire somebody who is a finalist mm-hmm. on Survivor, Colleen Haskell, mm-hmm. somebody who's never acted in her life mm-hmm. and who's never acted since. Mm-hmm. What reasoning, when you have all this machine right. behind you, do you do you make right. that kind of decision? I, I don't understand. Well, don't forget, we were... We, this is one of your things like where you say go to a filmmaker and then back the fuck off this you know this is don't forget this was produced by Sandler and Jack Garapito who are who we specifically had had massive success with before and since so that's one of the ones where you just back the fuck off you know and so they bring up her name and you're like it's a it's a 19 million dollar comedy at the time again we had huge success with Deuce Bigelow DVD is on the huge upswing, and you're and wow. And by the way, don't don't forget the end of that first year is Black Hawk Down and America's Sweetheart. So, it's not like you're so fixated on every decision of it. You're looking forward, trying to put a slate together. And yes, had we started with Black Hawk Down, it would have been. <laughs> had we reversed it, it would have been a different story. You start with Black Hawk Down, you do America's Sweethearts, then you get into the one, then you get an animal, then you get into Tomcats. You'd be like, okay, they're going downhill, but I get it. Then where we really started to hit our stride was when we got into anger management and and triple X, and we really started to get into kind of the movies you really wanted to make. Was there like a uh, was there like a discussions after those two movies came out? Okay, listen, we got to write the ship. We got these things coming out. We got Black Hawk Down. We got because mm-hmm. I think what's so fascinating about you and and about your business is the fact that. You have to be equally adept at at comedy mm-hmm. and drama, mm-hmm. which which. There isn't any television executive that's really equally adept of that, except maybe the president of the network and his staff, just right, right underneath right. him, that over like Bob Green Black with right. Jen Salk, you know. Mm-hmm. You, 
but you only have like one or two people in networks that do that, and everybody else is either broken up in the comedy or drama. Mm-hmm. But you're doing things like Black Hawk Down and The Animal. It's mm-hmm. just uh, well, it, weirdly enough, we were prepping Black Hawk Down while I was on set of the new guy. <laughs> so it was like the most bizarre. You know, so really what we tried to do, it, it, when I became an independent producer, I called three people. I called Lorenzo de Buenaventura, I called Jerry Bruckheimer, and I called uh, Jack Garaputo. And I said, okay, wh- what, am I, wh- what do I expect? And they all said the same thing. It's going to take five years. It's going to take you five years to really sort of figure out what you're doing because you don't have any movies you don't have any scripts but when you moved and you you, you went from uh, revolution and then you started your own company broken road it didn't take five years it didn't but you but when you start a new movie studio it's the same thing you it takes a while to get on your feet it, it look steven spielberg jeffrey katzenberg david geffen started a movie studio and and and, and until they got steven and stacy and they really kind of got on their feet they had as many hits, hits and misses as anybody. When you're starting from scratch, it's very hard. You look at the big studios, they have such a deep base, they have such a deep inventory, they can go out and buy IP. You know, Had we been independent producers, our first movie probably would have been Spider-Man. I think Amy probably would have loved to have Joe produce Spider-Man, and we would have come out of the gate as producers on Amy Spider-Man. Amy Pascal. So... That didn't happen, you know. Through the, you know, we were with HBO. I'm sorry, we were with Stars. They were with HBO. There was no way to make those deals work. We we couldn't do that. So we had to start from scratch. And and what happens is those movies, those really, you know, under twenty comedies back in the day, when DVD was great and television market was great, they were very easy to make. And a lot of people were making them, and you could make money doing it. It doesn't make you feel good because if they don't turn out great, as Patrick Goldstein said to me once, who's a who's a reporter for LA Times and now is a has his own uh, blog. He said you aimed low and missed, <laughs> and so and so he stuck with me because you don't try to aim low. You're just trying to get movies made and you're trying to entertain people. And when you miss, it's very painful because you weren't even you weren't going for high art. You were going for commerce. So the first drama at Revolution that really uh, came through in a big way was Black Hawk Down, right? And mm-hmm. that, I remember that because. That there was a comedian who uh, I I knew very well uh, named Michael Roof, who uh, yeah. got a got a gig his first film ever. He got a gig in in that uh, in that movie. He since actually took his own life, which was very sad. And Tom Sizemore, who yes. probably has done a lot of things to try to take his own life with so a with a movie, substance, yes. but but he's uh, so brilliant mm-hmm. and he's such an unbelievable actor. Still, mm-hmm. you know, you can't. Right. Doesn't matter how much problem somebody has, they're still great. But that Black Hawk Down is a perfect example of Joe being so filmmaker friendly. I developed that script with Jerry at at, at Touchstone, and <clears throat> when Disney decided it what that wasn't it wasn't for them, um, for whatever reason, you know, it was just such an easy thing for Jerry to call Ridley and Jerry. I'm mean, sorry for Joe to call Ridley and Jerry and say, "Let's do this." So, and there wasn't it was there was probably minutes from when J- Jerry got the call from Michael to when Joe called him. So as a producer, that's just incredible when you have that sort of loyalty and that, and that kind of fan base as Joe had for, for Jerry and Ridley. So that movie was very easy to, to come together. And we backed them 100%. That was completely Ridley's vision, completely Jerry's vision. And we just comp- stayed out of the way and, and, and backed them 100%. So the things that sometimes when you miss are the things that when it works, it works great. 
and you know it's interesting to see what people pass on that become successes mm -hmm. and you know people uh, a lot of people might not know this but in television you know Roseanne uh, NBC passed on Roseanne and ABC took her and uh, and ABC passed on Cosby and NBC took Cosby so it's just mm -hmm. things happen all the time yep. that way uh, and the first big uh, comedy hit was that Anger Management and Revolution. Yeah, That's, that was again the same relationship that made the animal, which actually opened to twenty million dollars, by the way. But that same relationship created Anger Management. So it's you know the, it's these relationships are not one offs. Or maybe they are now, but but for for us, we didn't want them to be one offs. We were we were betting on people for the for the long haul, and I, and I think anybody who's bet on Adam Sandler in the long haul has made wise decisions and then you uh and then after revolution you started your own company mm -hmm. in 2005 uh broken road mm -hmm. why, why broken road <laughs> uh it's a song uh it's a song by rascal flats and uh, at the time i was uh i was coming through a divorce and met my current wife and it just seemed like that song hit a particular note with me about my career and my relationships and how you know, everything kind of happens for a reason, and the and the twists and turns and the bumps kind of make make you who you are. It's amazing, isn't it? Like you talk about your personal relationship, like you're you know you're in a marriage, you you, you get into it, you think everything's going great and everything's going wonderful, and then one day, you know, it just something it's, goes wrong. It's and, generally not one day. Well, not one day. But <laughs> it's over generally time, over a period of a lot of. But days. the point being, at the time, you're thinking, "Oh my God, this is awful. This it's never going to get any better." And then when you meet the person yes. of your next person of your dreams, you're thinking to yourself, "Man, I want to send that first wife a fruit basket. Right. Thank you, well, thank uh, you very much, because you, you led me to this <laughs> point in my yeah. life." Well, everything. That's the point of the song: is that everything leads you to to where you ultimately have to be. And it's and it's funny because. You know, you, you you talk about my failures, and I feel I like, have well Tomcats and those things, and I feel like I haven't even gotten to the failures. Oh boy, here we go. I feel <laughs> like those things. I feel like those things have led me to just grow and and make better decisions, and hopefully, and and try to you learn from that. And and when you're in it, it's interesting. When you're in the moment, it's hard to see the forest through the trees. Sometimes it's hard to not believe in this is going to work out. You know, you you generally try to bet on people that you have relationships with or have some talent or and you and you bet on them. And you talk about relationships. So, uh for your new company, one of the relationships that you've created that you've I guess you would say has meant uh, a lot to you in terms of business and personally is Kevin James. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you done a lot of movies with him. You did uh, Here Comes the Boom, you did uh Paul Blart Mall Cop, mm -hmm. you did Zookeeper. Mm -hmm. So there's three movies mm -hmm. that you did with Kevin, and again, about relationships. Mm -hmm. And and he trusts you, and he feels safe doing things mm -hmm. with you, and it's it's uh, been pretty uh, successful. Well, I mean, I've built my whole career in relationships. I've done a lot of movies with Nick Cage. I've done a lot of movies with Jerry Bruckheimer. I've done a lot of movies with Adam Sandler and Jack Garapito. And I've done a lot of movies with Kevin James, and I feel like... Um, it just feels like when you find a rhythm with somebody, you try to just kind of, you know, trying to stick with it and, and, and play the relationship out, you know, for better, for worse. And, and when you believe in someone, again, like I said, when I believe in somebody like I'm, <clears throat> I've never made my career on making a Todd Garner movie. I always make a Jerry Bruckheimer movie or an Adam Sandler, Jack Garaputo movie or a Kevin James movie or a Nicolas Cage movie. I, I, I don't feel like I have a particular brand 
that I have to instill upon the movie. I'm always trying to do what's best for that particular filmmaker or actor um, to help them achieve their vision. Got it. Now, when you did Night and Day uh, for Fox, was that that coming at a point where this very a uh, critical time for I think when and Tom Cruise mm-hmm. when his deal at uh, at Paramount mm-hmm. correct right around the time that uh, yeah well it was definitely right after the time where um, Sumner had said you know he kind of screwed him over on the War of the Worlds <clears throat> which I don't know I don't know if that was true or not because then they've done Mission Impossible and been tremendously successful. Interestingly enough... A similar situation, again, with Nina, with Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like you have these situations that happen and people still want to make changes. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting one because that was a script that um, Steve Pink had brought me, and uh, we attached Chris Tucker and Ava Mendez to it. (laughs) And that it was much more of a kind of, you know, I was there... Uh, when Rush Hour was developed and was a huge fan of that franchise. And, and Chris Tucker was the first person that was actually attached to Nothing to Lose before Martin Lawrence. So I I, I, have, I like Chris. I think he's incredibly talented. Amazing. Yeah. And so he was attached. And so we developed that script as a comedy. And it went all the way down the line. And once uh, it became a Fox project, they, they had other visions for it and developed it and brought Jim Mangled on and got Cameron Diaz and got cruise and and to be honest that's one where you as a producer you go okay well look at i mean these incredibly (laughs) talented people i was shooting zookeeper at the time like let them let them do it and i thought they did a a a good job with it i felt like you know where i could see that it it was a project for chris tucker uh there was that scene in the train with falk henschel the guy who was the villain right in the train and they're getting in the fight yeah. in that small area yeah. there with the by the way tom was incredible I mean, it, it was, and i felt there that's where yeah. i could see where that could really be or it, it, in what didn't make the movie if you've ever had a chance to watch the director's cut of that movie th- there's an incredible amount of comedy and tom cruise is great at it i i think they made a decision at some point along the way that maybe to kind of lean more on the action than the comedy but the idea that Tom was a guy who you didn't know whether or not was crazy the whole movie was was great and I think maybe they got nervous at the time uh, because of what Tom was going through personally but if you watch the director's cut of that movie there's a moment where he jumps from a car and jumps into her car that in the in the script and in, in and they shot it and you can see it in the longer cut he actually hits an ice cream truck and lands in the backseat of another car <laughs> it, 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 and Tom's great he plays the physical comedy plays the wry kind of like Chris Tucker sardonic kind of comedy very well and I think that they might have just got a little nervous about it and backed off it a little bit. I uh, We're heading into the final roundup, but I have mm-hmm. so many things to ask you. One of the things I think that's important for our audience is how you are as an executive and the little things that have happened, that just how the smallest little thing can turn into something huge. So if you will, just take me through the germ of how the movie Con Air Mm -hmm. got going through something that happened to you and your vision throughout the company. (laughs) Right now everyone thinks I was arrested and flown by plane. Uh, Donald DeLine had seen an article in the LA Times and brought it into a staff meeting and laid it down on the desk. He said, what do you guys think about this? I immediately gravitated to it. It was just a picture of a bunch of shackles leading up to a plane uh, jetway. And I was like, this, and it said Con Air. And I'm like, "Uh, this is incredible. And we had had a blind script commitment with Scott Rosenberg. 
And Scott Rosenberg had written a script called Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. And I his, love that movie. His voice is yeah, his voice is so great. And I thought if he if I could get him to write this, if I could just help him with the set pieces, which we then brought in Jonathan Hensley and we brought in JJ Abrams to, to kind of help with the set pieces of it, Scott could write all the guys stuck on a plane and give them these weird kind of, you know, this kind of odd patois that, that, that Scott writes with. And so Scott and I, he was a very good friend of mine, and just the two of us developed this script. And we, um, after uh, Crimson Tide and, and, and The Rock, which I, I had been slightly involved with before um, Caravan, I wanted to give it to Don and Jerry. And so we gave them this script. And you know they you know, they were very gracious enough to come on board and and Don had passed away a couple of months after we gave uh, the script to to uh, Don and Jerry and so Jerry was gonna this was gonna be Jerry's first movie as a producer and it was exciting because he had never done anything on his own and and he came in and, and really worked hard on the script and and really he developed it in, into what it is uh, what you see on screen and then. You know, from his his relationship on The Rock, he got Nick Cage, and then, you know, once we had Nick, all these other interesting, very cool, odd well, actors you, gravitated towards the script. And you were very instrumental, and that was one of the first times that we worked together because it was something that I remember reading, and I just thought he, Dave Chappelle, you know, yeah. would be so special, and you were really instrumental. And making that happen and pushing that through, and I remember that. And you say sometimes with a director you don't have influence or whatever, but I think you had a huge influence on in that one. Well, uh, maybe with that one, yeah. I mean, the, the 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 amazing thing about Jerry is that Bruckheimer is that he is so inclusive, and it he has no ego because it's always a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, so he has no ego about who comes up with an idea, and he is completely willing to listen. He's open to anybody from the craft service guy to, you know, the silly development executive who's been assigned working in his movie to just listen. And he was he was like I said, he's one of my great mentors and I'm completely so grateful to him for everything he's given me. He was so open to listen. And Dave Chappelle was a great idea for that movie. And he and he and he played uh, he played that part incredibly well. And, and what was great about Dave is you really needed to remember him because he's instrumental in the plot. And um, yeah, so, you know, once we had Simon West and, and Nick, it was really just about, okay, let's really fill this up with the most kind of interesting and cool cast we possibly can. And you did. All right, so I'm gonna ask you about a bunch of people, but sure. I just want you to tell me the one thing that stands <clears throat> out to you about sure. these people or projects. Maybe there's a quick story, some unique thing. Mm -hmm that will be inspirational or blow people away or people can't believe that <laughs> I it's... That's a, I don't you know, know if I can blow anyone away. <laughs> um, Michael Eisner. And uh, Michael was... Um, he, he was almost like a uncle to me. He was incredibly intelligent. Uh, he's incredibly insightful and, and, he, and, a, and a great visionary. And um, I think had a had this long-term vision for Disney way way before a anyone else had and I think it, I think now looking back you finally realize what a genius he was or is sorry Michael Adam Sandler my older brother best friend protector 
you know, emotional about him. I love him so much. He's done so much for me and my career and my family, and he's just an incredibly, uh, incredibly loyal and insightful and, in, and in just a great friend. Jerry Bruckheimer. Uh, completely, uh, he's like an alien from the future. Like he, <laughs> he sees things that nobody else sees. He sees, uh, he sees cultural phenomenons. He sees, uh, hits is not even the right word. He just sees global success. And he, he once he locks into it, he, you know, he just is completely able to stop at nothing until he gets there. And it's, uh, you know, he, he taught me he taught me about perseverance and he taught me about um, kind of just sort of trying to open it up and see it kind of from a global perspective. Ice Cube. Oh, Ice Cube. Well, I'm the one. I mean, it's so funny because I, uh, you know, I we, we developed Are We There Yet for Adam Sandler. And when Adam passed, uh, he wasn't he felt he'd kind of been there with Big Daddy. Um, I'm the one who said, hey, I, we should <laughs> we should put Ice Cube in there, not. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up with NWA, and and you see him. He's such a family man and such a great person. I had tried to get him when I uh, was an executive to do Snow Dogs, and uh, and I just knew he'd be great. I just knew he would be great in the movie. J.J. Abrams. Uh, again, I think he was on the same spaceship as Jerry when they came down. Um, you know, I've i I knew him um, as a writer. He would come in. He came up with the Corvette bit. And Conair, like he would just come in and drop five unbelievably huge, earth-shattering, movie-changing moments, and it was just you're in awe because he made it seem so easy. And obviously, he's continuing to do so. And even with the way he spoke about story and the way that he talked about script, you knew he was going to be a great producer. Kevin James, my best friend. Uh, he is. Uh, he is the. Everything I would hope to ever have been had I been a comedian. I, I just think he's in, incredibly talented and so generous with his comedy and generous with who he is as a person. And I think that he, uh, I still think, an really good actor. And I think the best for him is still yet to come. Awesome. All right. So let's talk about some holy shit moments. Oh God. Something that we haven't talked <laughs> about here. So... You've had a long career. You've done a lot of things. You continually do a lot of things. Take me through one story, one thing that happened on a set or in a meeting or something mm -hmm. that just was like no one could believe. It would be like the highlight chapter of your book, some crazy fucking thing. Good or bad? Anything. Well, bad's easier because more, more bad happens than good. It's like a lot of bad days strung with one, one you good You could tell one. us one bad, one good. Well, okay, so my worst moment was I was an independent producer and uh, I had no movies going. I, I left Revolution with a, you know, a, couple of, a couple of movies that we did and once those were done, I had nothing. I had no development, I had nothing. I had no office, it was just me and this, you know, the, this guy who I'm, is a partner with me, this Sean Robbins, and we were, I was just you know, paying for my own overhead and uh, I woke up at three in the morning and, and I heard someone scream, what the fuck, really loud, and I realized it was me <laughs> standing in the middle of my bedroom going, how did, did I get here? I have, I, have no, I have no income. I have no chance of income. I have no, you know, I'm not, I'm not working. I'm unemployed for the first time in my life. How the hell did I get here? And that was singularly the most scary moment because you realize at the end of the day, 
if you're not working for a company, if you're on your own, you're on your own and you have to figure out how to make it work. And so, you know, at that moment, you just got to get to work the next day and start making calls and try to find, you know, a script or try to find somebody that's willing to take a bet on you and, and, and start over again. That was the scariest moment in my life that when, you know, one of the, one of the best, the, the kind of two best moments, I've had a lot of movies gross a lot of, a lot of money and open, open to big numbers, but the two, and they're sort of bookends, was when Waterboy opened to $39 million or 38, whatever it was, um, it was amazing. It was my friends. It was a movie that, you know, Joe said, go make it, you know, like you and I, you know, Adam had only done, uh, the, the wedding singer hadn't even come out yet. So it really was just about happy Gilmore and Billy Madison. And he goes, yeah, go ahead. You know, you're going to spend 25 million, whatever it is on it. Go ahead. And when it opened to 38, $9 million, it was the only time it was a Monday morning and I was in my tiny little house and uh, the phone rang at seven o'clock in the morning and I answered the phone and it was Michael Eisner's assistant. And he said, uh, I have Michael for you. And I go, okay. And I'm trying to like sound like I've been up for an hour. <laughs> and I go, hi. And he goes, hey. He goes, that was awesome. He goes, we, let's do more of those. Let's make, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm thinking to myself, okay, yeah, okay, I'm trying. <laughs> this is just the one that worked out. But because it was my friends and we were all young and kind of growing up together, it was an unbelievable moment. And Donald DeLine was very smart. He goes, really? sit with this moment and really uh, appreciate it because it's probably not going to happen again for another 10 years. And I was like, yeah, right, for you. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> and, it, and, and, we were in, and we were in, Kevin James and I were in Minnesota and it was snowing and it was very late. And we were driving from a, a screening at the Mall of America and we were going to get- Largest mall in America. Yeah, and we were going to get to the airport and I was in the back of the Suburban and we were driving and and- I think either Kevin's manager or Kevin said, what, what do you think's going to happen? I mean, Jeff Sussman. Yeah. What do you think's going to happen? And I said, and I wrote with my foot 39.6 in the frost. And I said, it's going to happen again. I feel it. It feels like the water boy again. It's all of us together. It was Adam Sandler produced it. Jack Irapito, me. It just felt just the, the mall cop. This mall cop. And, uh, and it did. And when it opened to the, I mean, it just kept climbing and opened those numbers. It was the second, it was a great bookend for us friends to kind of go through this twice in one career. It was great. That was a really great, that was a great night. And to Donald DeLine's credit, the second time I absolutely did soak it in a lot more than I had the first because it was a, it was a rough, it was a rough road to get there. And it was uh, exciting to go through that with, with people that you love. Well, those sound like really proud moments. Uh, incredible. What was your uh, biggest disappointment professionally? My biggest disappointment professionally is probably the way I handled Pearl Harbor. I, I, um, I let a lot of other stuff. I mean, uh, uh, and there, you know, Tom King took me apart in in the Wall Street Journal. And but our uh, audience doesn't know how Tom King took you apart. So well, why you talk well, a so what, what happened was I, I just think I just think I, I I I came up with the idea for Pearl Harbor. I I gave it to Michael and Jerry, and uh, I worked hard on that movie. And I left in the middle of it. It was no fault of anybody but mine. I just didn't want to be it. And I and I had a lot of anger, and I and I was mad that I gave them that idea. I, I wished I would have had it for myself as a producer or. Or take it to revolution, and, and I and I stupidly was just you know young, and saying a lot of stuff you know like how mad I was about it, and then you know Tom King and the Wall Street Journal got a hold of me, and he was very smart, and got me to say a lot of stuff in my anger that I wouldn't have said, in, including 
a, a, a thing where I said, um, I said, uh, oh, you know, he goes, why didn't you come to the premiere? I just had a, my son. And I said, well, yeah, why would I go? It's my second best creation. And he flipped the quote and made it sound like my son was my second best creation and really taught me a huge, by the way, taught me a huge lesson that, you know, you can't take it so personally. You can't get so emotionally invested and feel so wronged. And by the way, I was only wronged by my own desire. I mean, Jerry and Michael have been great friends and, and I love those guys and they, they wanted me to stay, but everything got twisted around and it just made me look really stupid and made me look like a jerk and I deserved it. And, and I think that's the thing I've taken and I've just a heart and I really have learned the most is you can't let all that other stuff get involved. These are, these are movies and you do your best and you hope that they're good and some are going to be good and not make money and some are going to be bad and make money and vice versa. And you just have to kind of roll with the punches and kind of keep an even keel. And, you know, my, for me now, my most important thing is my family, my wife, my son and my daughter and, and my friends and, and really trying to live, uh, my life and really be grateful for what I have as opposed to just letting the way it was, was letting everything get caught up in the movies, the packaging, where I stood in the business, the grosses. It's just, it's just hard because it, it's a, it's a, in the long run, we're all going to win and we're all going to fail. And if you put too much stock in that, it really can mess you up. Cool. Lastly, uh, tell me since you started your career sort of in that improv class, mm -hmm. And you've worked with so many comedians along the way and so many executives. I think this is a two-part question. What advice do you have for anyone around the world that wants to be in the film business and uh, wants to become a young executive and work their way up and become a producer like yourself? What steps would you recommend them taking mm -hmm. to sort of not give a shortcut to success, but sort of have an easier uh, travel route than maybe you might have had. Mm -hmm. And lastly, for the performer out there, the young Sandler, the young mm -hmm. Kevin James, the young Ice Cube out there, what advice do you have for them to work through the system and to get to the point where they have the kind of faith and trust and career that these people have well first of all for both sides you can't care about money you have to just love it and you have to be willing to earn it and it's hard and it's and it's getting harder in terms of the process of getting the job and working way up way, work your way up the ladder is harder on the flip side what's great is access is so much better you don't need to go to film school anymore, really. I mean, you can learn everything on the internet. You can do shorts for Funny or Die. You can listen to filmmakers speak on any number of topics. You can take courses online. You can go to UCLA Extension. You can do all this stuff. You can have, and you have such access now. If you're a young comedian, you, you can get discovered. I mean, you look at Justin Bieber in the music business or Martin Garrix, who is this 16-year-old DJ who Scooter Braun also found. Like, you can get discovered off of internet. Uh, piece now and you can get followers and you can you can build your your base if you're a young comedian and you can you can kind of hone your craft and learn as you go and and if you're talented somebody will find you that's I mean that's the key I mean the, the fear and and the anxiety of someone coming up is I think I'm great but no one's noticing me and the fact of the matter is is if you're talented and if you if you are ready 
somebody will find you. It's just it, it it's just the way it is. And in terms of uh, young young people coming up through the ranks and wanting to be uh, an executive, um, I, you just got to follow the path that I followed. You need to find somebody who's willing to take the shot on you as an assistant. You need to either get a job at, in a production company or um, uh, in an agency or at a studio as an assistant and really work hard. And because, like I said, once you get on a lot, you kind of move ahead in the time-space continuum three years because you're not watching movies that are just being released that were thought of and developed and put into production three years ago. You're now reading those scripts. So you're now jumped forward in, in, in the future three years, and you're seeing things that are going to come out two, three years from now. And so that's really important because if you're just watching movies, you're like, why are they making these decisions? This, but you're seeing decisions that were made three, year, three years ago. So sometimes that lag can be very confusing. And once you're in it and you start to see, okay, well, those, oh, you know, that was something that was done two, three years ago. It makes sense. They've, we're now, that company's now moving on from that or they're, they're changing their, their vision or, or not. Or, you know, like in the case of like a Jason Blum who produces all the, the paranoias and the paranormals and, and insidious and, and um, purge, that's a new business that he found. It's only really been a few years. So if you're watching that, you're going, well, another one? What? And, but you don't realize that he's way far ahead and doing things that are light years ahead of what's been released you know, a couple months ago. So getting in on the ground level and really kind of working hard and not worrying about money, being able to like make decisions based on what you think is the way to get you into the right room so that you can um, you know, just be creative naturally and and have the people that are the decision makers appreciate your point of view. This has been awesome. Uh, Todd, or as I call you, Tom, <laughs> uh, this has been absolutely amazing. Okay. You've been so inspirational. Our audience is going to love oh, this. Good. Thank you so much for coming here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, this has been another episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame you get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, till it all feels the same. Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, 
please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.